you would take your Bibles, please, turn to Micah chapter 4. It's on page 778 in your pew Bible. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we looked at Micah chapter 2, and Micah chapters 1 through 3 is really the judgment of God. It's all the bad stuff. It's here, here's the covenant consequences because of the sins that you have committed to Israel. Uh, here's what God's going to do because of the awful ways that you have treated others. Uh, the strong has oppressed the weak, the rich has oppressed the poor for gain. They're greedy, they're covetous. Uh, but that's not to say that church attendance wasn't good. Church attendance was great at this time, but they just weren't worshiping the Lord with their whole hearts. In fact, he basically says of them, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Uh, we even talked about how God looks at them and says, I actually hate what you do. <laughs> you, when you come together to worship, it's not worship that's happening. You're patronizing me. And so God is pouring out his judgment upon them and saying, because of all these things, I'm going to send a nation to conquer you, and he, you're going to go into exile. So chapters 1 through 3 is, is all laying this foundation of judgment and consequence for Israel. But then we come to chapter 4, when we get some really good news, that while all this is true, God doesn't change his mind about any of it, he, he tells them to look on past that, to the true worshipers of Israel, the true lovers of God, those who have actually repented of their sins, there's, there's great news. They're going to have to go through this judgment, but there's something great waiting for them after it's over, when they'll be brought back and restored once again. So let me read for us, Micah chapter 4, I'm going to read the first eight verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us ears to hear today your word? Lord, would you give us great hope that the gospel gives? The hope for this life, but more importantly, Lord, hope for the world that is to come. The new heavens and new earth, Lord, that you would lift our gaze to see that. And that would impact us here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've probably heard this illustration used before. But students of World War II often say that though VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, which happened on May 8th of 1945, was the official end of the war in Europe, it really was about 11 months prior to that. 
June the 6th of 1944, a day that we'll observe on Wednesday, D-Day, when 200,000 troops, 1,000 ships, Operation Overlord was carried out. We crossed the English Channel, the Allied forces did, and we began to push back the German, the German uh, army. We pushed them back and back and back and, and further still. And it was really D-Day, the great victory on that day, that led to the victory 11 months later. So historians will often say, though the war was not over on D-Day, it in effect was over on D-Day because it was such a decisive victory that really decided the war in Europe. Now, had you been a soldier that remained on the battlefield for those 11 months, you probably would have not have thought of it that way. You're still having to dodge bullets. You're still having to carry out the orders of your commanding officer. You're still having to watch your friends and loved ones die in front of you. It didn't seem over to them, but it was. The great victory had been won that was going to propel them to the final victory on VE Day, May 8th of 1945. There's great application, I think, for the Christian life. We're going to come to the table in just a minute, and, and it's the victory we already have. We already have victory in Jesus. We've already been united with him in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. All that he's done for us, his life and his death, it's, it's shown forth here. So there's hope we already have, but it propels us forward to a great hope that we will one day, in fact, have. A complete hope, a, a completed work. And we'll have great hope and joy forever. But today... In your life, it may not feel that way. You may not feel very victorious. You, still, you continue to toil in the disappointment and brokenness and sinfulness of this world. It still hurts very much. You're victorious in Christ, but yet it's not completely and finally fulfilled. We still labor here. But make no mistake, the victory indeed has been won. It doesn't always feel like it day to day, but Christ has won the victory. Is what one commentator said, it's the two-sided reality of redemptive history that leads to an already and not yet dynamic in the structure of the Bible's presentation. To be clear, the already is not the present age in itself, but the, present, the presence of the age to come that has come to bear on this present age. Theologians use the concept of inaugurated eschatology, to describe the significance of the fact that the final fulfillment of God's plan for humanity and all creation has begun. The way things will be forever has crashed into the way things are now temporarily. You see his point? The reality of what will be in the new heavens and new earth has already come to bear now. The, the wonders of, of peace, the wonders of true worship, we should already be experiencing now in this life. The already but not yet fully as it will be one day. Greg Beale in his uh, uh, New Testament biblical commentary says, the hope of final victory is so much more vivid because of the unshakably firm conviction that the battle that decides the victory has already taken place. All the things that will characterize the second coming of Christ have begun to happen with the first coming. The kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet fully realized. All of us are saved if we're in Christ, but we're also being saved, more into the image of Jesus. God's people are being restored, but not yet fully restored. We're cleansed, but we're also being cleansed. And Micah gives hope for those who are experiencing the already, but are look forward to the not yet. 
hope for eternal life. Micah does here at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, Israel, stop looking right in front of you for just a minute. I want to lift your head up and I want to point you to something past all this. Past how bad it is, past the sinfulness and how it's affected your, your nation, past the coming exile, and I want to show you something that's real and certain. It's heaven. It's a perfect picture of how things are going to be. Take a look at that for just a minute and let the hope of that impact you now today as you continue to live throughout all of this. I want you to see what's not yet to come. And I want it to give you great hope. I know things are really bad right now, but a day's coming when it's not going to be bad. When worship is going to be completely in spirit and truth. When there's going to be peace amongst the nations and amongst ourselves. When there's going to be deep and lasting contentment with all that we have. Because what do you put your hope in? When, you, when you're sitting in the quiet of your own thoughts, what are you hoping in? What are you wishing for? Do you even allow yourself to look up for a moment and see all that Christ has promised to come and do? Are you so bogged down in the difficulty of life right now? Our hope that we find in Christ has already come. And what we're going to see, we're going to see the already and not yet through the, lent, through the eyes of the Israelites. And then I want us to see the already and not yet through our own eyes or what we ought to see. And it's going to look really similar, but with one marvelous difference. Jesus has already come for us. And that makes all the difference. So number one, there's just two points today. Number one is the already. Verses one through eight of this chapter give a glorious scenario. It's a utopia of sorts. The gloomy picture of judgment and consequences and, and invasion and destruction, it has given way to something wonderful. Micah is addressing the faithful remnant in Israel, okay? He's gone from talking about everybody to my, the faithful, the, those who've repented. I have something that you need to hear to encourage you. People are going to worship God in spirit and truth perfectly one day. It's not always going to be the way that it is now. It's one of the reasons for the beauty of this passage is that it's, it's totally out of harmony with the reality of the world. <laughs> this is not what they were experiencing this is not what we experience. Maybe to a small degree, but not fully and perfectly yet. And our culture says that utopia is everyone living harmoniously, doing whatever they want. Believing whatever they want. So long as it doesn't oppress someone or harm them in any way, let's just do whatever we want. Believe whatever we want. Worship whomever we want. The Bible says that's not utopia at all. That's bondage. The Bible says utopia is everyone worshiping God and calling upon his name, coming to sit at his feet, humbly admitting, I don't know how to get through this world. I don't know what I'm doing, Lord. I need you. So our passage begins by saying, in the latter days. It's literally translated, in the back of the days. Okay? So, in the end. It's not a specific day or even moment. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a series of events. There's, there's a, a length of time, but it's in the latter of these days. Three things are going to happen. Chapter 4 covers two of them. Chapter 5 covers a third. A remnant's restoration from Babylon. A nation's going to come and conquer them, but they're going to come back and be restored. That's number one. Number two... God's universal rule and everlasting peace upon his people. We'll talk about those two. 
The third is, is your classic uh, uh, Christmas sermon. <laughs> Micah chapter 5 is probably the most well-known of the prophecies when it says that Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem. We won't talk about that one this morning. But underneath those two, there's three things that are going to be indicative of this perfect new heavens and new earth. It's true worship, it's peace among the nations, and it's contentment of God's people. So let's look at those three in order. We see in this passage people from all over the world are flocking to the mountain of the Lord. Okay, it's just they're making this huge pilgrimage, and everyone is coming to the mountain of the Lord to worship. Which, had we, had we read chapter 3, we would see how interesting that is. Because in chapter 3, the mountain of the Lord has been reduced to rubble and to nothing. But now it has been lifted up higher than all the mountains, higher than everything, and people are coming to learn. They realize how great God is. Those who had once hated him and despised him have now changed their mind about that and are now coming to learn from him. There's no coercion to do this. There's no hesitation. It's a worldwide movement. They've rejected their gods and their way of life, and so we want to live under the kingship of Yahweh. We want to learn from him. They will worship in spirit and truth, the exact opposite that's happening right now in Israel. They're not worshiping in spirit and truth. They're honoring God with their mouth, but their heart has no love and care for God whatsoever. Everything that Micah's describing here in these first six verses is exactly the opposite that's happening in Israel right now. And Micah's saying, but one day it's going to be good, and it's going to be good forever. Find hope in that. Secondly, there's peace. In verse 3, we see that God will sit as royal judge among the nations. And all this international conflict, it's going to be over. There's not going to be war anymore. And no fear of war. So much so that they've taken their weapons that they used to go out with in war and they've, they've, they've broken them down into tools of productivity and farming and agriculture. It's, it's literally telling you not only is there peace, in other words, we're not arguing with each other, with other nations, we're so comfortable in the way that the world is, we've taken our weapons and it's now tools of productivity. It's not just a cessation or absence of war. There's harmony. There's love and care for a neighbor. And lastly, number three, contentment of God's people. Not only will the earth produce its crops and a fruit in abundance, but the people will be happy with that. They'll be content with the things that they have. The Lord has given me this. I'm happy with that. I don't need any more. It says they will sit down in this. To sit down in something ought to, make, ought to remind us of Psalm chapter 1, although in Psalm 1 it's used negatively. When it says the unrighteous man sits in the seat of scoffers. That's it. To sit down into something means you're, you're settled in your mind about it. Like, this is now my habit. The people of God in this passage have sat down in their contentment for what God has given them. They're happy with it. They're happy with everything that they have. Does that describe you today? Very rarely are we just content in what God has done for us and what he has given us. This truly is a wonderful thing that Mike is describing because it's so wholly different than what they're experiencing. It goes on to say that none shall make them afraid. They're not afraid of the nations. They're not even afraid of God anymore in terms of judgment. There's an awe and, fe and reverence fear, but not a fear of what he might do to them because they have been restored in every way. Verses 6 through 8, it's kind of Micah saying, okay, don't look 
past anymore. Look back to the present again. <laughs> he snaps him back to the reality. He says, you're, right now, you're lame and you're weak and afflicted. Okay? Judgment in the form of Babylon is coming, and you remnant, you're going to have to go through that too. Okay? The, the bad's coming for you too. But I'm going to gather you once it's all over. If you remember from chapter 2, he's, he's going to gather them together like a shepherd gathers his sheep. They'll be battered and bruised and exhausted, but God will rescue them. Amos gives a really appalling picture of this in chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and the part of a bed. It was expected of a shepherd that a lion or a bear was to maul one of his sheep. He was supposed to go gather what he could, even if it was just a leg, even if it was just an ear, even if it was just some insides, to prove that he tried to go and help his sheep in any way, he brought even pieces of it back. And Amos is saying, that's what the remnant's going to be like. It's going to be bad. You're going to go off to exile, and you're going to be mutilated. But I'm going to come, and there's not going to be many of you, but I'm going to gather you like the shepherd gathers a leg and an ear. And I'm going to come, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to give you your land back, and I'm going to love you, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God once again. There's hope in this. There's hope that he's trying to give. And there's hope for us. There's hope for us right now today in the already. Christ has come inaugurating what Micah calls the latter days. He starts it, okay? We don't know how long these latter days are going to be, but Jesus begins the latter days. He uses language in Matthew chapter 4 of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, I'm starting something here that's going to grow and grow and grow and be grander and grander. And so this true worship and peace and contentment that you see perfectly at the beginning of chapter 4, we ought to see at least in a small way in our own hearts and lives, and in our church. This ought to already be happening amongst us. What is this already? The king has come, and he's brought the kingdom. In chapter 2, the worship was fake and empty, but we should see true worship. God's not fooled. And when we come to worship God in spirit and truth, when we come here humbly and ready to sit at his feet and learn, he delights in that. He doesn't look at us and say, I hate what you do, when we come in the manner that he has asked us to come. He takes delight in that. The true worship of the nations ascending the mountain of the Lord in order to worship him is what we ought to look like. The nations who would have no reason to like each other or spend time with each other otherwise are united around the worship of God. We come to worship so that we would be changed. We come to worship submitting ourselves to the sovereign plan and rule of God. Secondly, the church ought to be a place of peace and rest. Now, that ought to be a place that's comfortable for us to come, that we're eager to come to, yet often it isn't. Often, those of us here in our church body, we gossip just as much as the world does. Often we backbite, we don't forgive, we, we are not loving, just like the world isn't. And so, even amongst ourselves, it isn't peaceful here whatsoever. Why did you come this morning? Did you come to sit at the feet of God and learn? Or did you come to listen so you can't wait to go out to lunch and critique the sermon? You can't wait to go and critique, I can't believe she wore that this morning. 
I can't believe that this, that this family did this and that. Did you hear about that? And that's what you came eager about this morning, not to sit at the feet of the Lord and hear from him and be changed by him, to live peacefully with one another. I can't wait to ask so-and-so. They had a prayer request last week. I wonder how that's going. To talk about, the Lord has been so good to me. He's given me contentment in all that I have. We are to see the already reign of Christ impacting us even now. Do you see it? Secondly, the not yet. As I mentioned, we're saved and we're being saved. Christ's kingship is acknowledged all over the world today by millions. But one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ has won the victory over sin and death. But one day, there will be no more death at all. There'll be no more presence of sin in this world. Christ is making all things new, but one day they will, in fact, all be new. The power of the gospel, the love of Christ, is being experienced already, but not yet fully. We will know true worship to its full because we will be seated with the one that we have been worshiping, and we will know it perfectly. We will know true peace because Christ, our good king, will rule over us. We'll love him, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to, and we'll love one another the same. We will know true contentment because we will have all that we need. And we'll trust Christ to give us anything that we could ever need. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he tells the story of a man named Howard Thurman, who was an African-American scholar. And in 1947, Howard gave a lecture at Harvard on the meaning of the Negro spiritual, where he responded to one of the criticisms of these songs, namely, that they were too otherworldly. Indeed, the Negro spirituals of the slaves were filled with references to heaven and judgment day, to the crowns and thrones and robes that we will one day wear. The charge was that African-American slaves did not need all that. In fact, talk of heaven may have made them docile and too resigned in their condition. And here's how Howard Thurman responded to that. The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could never crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Thurman went on. He went on to argue that the slaves believed the Christian faith, and therefore they knew of the new heavens and new earth, and about Judgment Day. They knew that eventually all their desires would be fulfilled and that no perpetrator of injustice was ever going to get away with anything, that all the wrongdoing would be put down, and that was hope that no amount of oppression could ever extinguish. Why? Because their hope was not in the present. It was in the future. Some argued that it would have been better for the slaves to put their hope in some kind of concrete political action, but hope in our own achievements can be dashed so that hopelessness engulfs us. But hope in the new heavens and the new earth, it can never be snuffed out because it's based on God's actions and not our own. You know, Lord willing, none of us is ever going to be torn limb from limb by a lion with people watching on, cheering with approval, as many in the early church did. None of us is likely to be set on wood and lit on fire simply because we believe in biblical and orthodox Christianity, as many in the Reformation and before that were. 
None of us are likely to experience a life of servitude and slavery where we're denigrated and mistreated and dehumanized. Lord willing, that won't be the fate for us. So, if the hope of heaven, the true worship of Christ, and the peace of God gave comfort to those who experience such things, how much more ought it give us hope? That's not to downplay any of the trials and suffering that you currently are going through. I don't mean to make light of any of that. I'm not saying buck up, it's really not that bad. That's not the point. But are you seeking the already hope of the gospel to give you strength right now? Because it can. Do you ever allow yourself to really look up and past all the suffering and bad of the life and say, but I've got something great and it's coming. And it's not based on me, it's based on what God promises in his word and the hope that it gives. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ give you hope? Our world needs hope. Hope is very powerful, but but not just any hope will do. It's got to be a hope of Christ. That's the only one that's long enough and strong enough. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the senior pastor of First Presbyterian, or excuse me, Tenth Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many years. He lost his wife when his daughter was still very young. And Dr. Barnhouse was trying to help his daughter and really himself process the loss of his wife and his daughter's mother. And once they were driving and a huge moving van passed by them, and as it passed, the shadow of the truck went over their car. Dr. Barnhouse turned to his daughter and said, Honey, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? Well, his daughter replied, Well, by the shadow, of course. That can't hurt us at all. Dr. Barnhouse replied, Well, that's right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. It was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive. She's more alive than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but our entrance into glory. That's the truth of the gospel for us today. It's not to make light of anything that we go through. Not at all. But it's to remind you that what you're going through right now is just the valley of the shadow of death. It's painful and it's awful, but it's not forever. Your loved ones that have died recently and they have died in the Lord, they're more alive than we are right now. And the pain and suffering and trials, it's God from from Psalm 23 taking us through the valley of shadow of death and through all that into glory, into a new heavens and new earth. This is to give us hope today. It's just to raise our eyes and raise our spirits and say, Lord, thank you. Remind me of this often. Revelation chapter 21 gives us a clear picture of what it's going to be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is our wondrous hope first breath. A day when there's no more, 
No more mourning and crying and pain and all the things right now would be a distant memory. They will have all passed away. And we will be with our Savior Jesus Christ, worshiping him forever, peace with one another, and true and lasting contentment in all that he is and all that we have. Take joy in the hope of this passage today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess that we, we don't take much hope in all that you've done. We need to be reminded. We need to have our eyes lifted to all that you have done. Would you remind us, Lord, that you are coming again to make all things new. You are coming again to take us to be with you so that we might love you forever and ever. Thank you, Lord. We do not deserve this. We do not seek you, yet you have chosen to pour out your mercy and grace upon us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.